Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest is Maud Marin. She is a lawyer, specifically a longtime public defender, and a schools advocate in New York City, where she was board president of Manhattan's largest school district. Maud ran for Congress earlier this year in New York's 10th district as a centrist Democrat. She was part of a large field of candidates in the primary competing for a rare open seat, and she did not win but she remains a prominent voice seeking to elevate liberals with more moderate positions. Maud has an interesting backstory involving being fired by her former employer, the Legal Aid Society, for speaking publicly about what she saw as the inherent racism of DEI trainings in the workplace. We cover some of that, as well as discuss her views on some of the hotter culture war topics of the moment. And frankly, I could have had her as a guest at any given point over the last few years of doing this podcast, but the midterms seemed like a great occasion. And this conversation was recorded on the morning of Thursday, November 10th, about 36 hours since the results of Tuesday's elections began coming in. Even though things look good for the Democrats overall and moderates on both sides seem to be doing well, Maude remains frustrated with the direction of her party, and I wanted to talk with her about where she thinks things are headed. So here's our conversation. Maude Marin, welcome to The Unspeakable. Megan, thanks for having me. You are a lifelong Democrat. You have a history of progressive activism. You ran for Congress earlier this year in the 10th District in New York as a centrist Democrat. You've been very vocal about your feelings about the state of the Democratic Party. Yes. You vocally supported the Republican candidate for New York governor. So we're recording this conversation on November 10th. It's the morning of November 10th. It's two days after the midterms. The votes are still being counted in some places, but it's looking like uh, the Senate will remain controlled by the Democrats. The ne- the Republicans were, will narrowly win the House. How are you feeling about the results? Well, I am disappointed. <laughs> I'm disappointed in New York. I'm not super surprised. I mean, we're a very Democratic state, but there's a two to one, you know, registration favorability for Democrats, right? Like we, the Democrats have many more registered voters particularly in the city, like in, in New York City, it's um, is where so many of those Democratic voters come from. And I've been one of them <laughs> for a really long time. But yes, I did vote for Lee Zeldin. And for me, you know, I've been thinking about it as a lot of us have. It's like a lot of my unhappiness with what I saw in my party got framed through a kind of kids and school and mom issue right? Like the moms were unhappy about the closed schools and that's how people look at the Glenn Youngkin playbook and all of that. Right. But for me, and I'm, I think mom activists are amazing. I'm one of them. I think what moms have done to get our schools open has been super important, but there's also something that I think people can be dismissive about the label when you put the mom label on it. And for me, really, the issue is a civil liberties issue, right? Shutting down our businesses, shutting down our schools, telling us that we can't go into a restaurant on a, the block where we live on unless some, you know, mater d takes your mater d. It's like some kid in a with a therm, you know thermometer takes your temperature. It's like it was. Re- it's so authoritarian what happened in my city. It's so it violate violates 
present tense, our civil liberties, parents still can't go into their kid's school for a parent-teacher conference in, without showing proof of, of a vaccination that doesn't work, right? Yeah. It's like yeah. the state can tell you to, and I'm vaccinated. It's like, but the state can tell you to get a vaccine that doesn't work or keep you out of your kid's school. It's so wrong. And for me, the Democrats just didn't pay a price for what they got wrong. So I want to hear about your story. I know a little bit about it, but I want you to tell it in your own words. But before we get to that, you know, it is looking like it was a good night for centrists overall. For the most part, sort of MAGA picked uh, Republicans did not fare well. The super left woke Democrats also didn't didn't do as well as the centrists, but even that is not making you that that's not at least making you feel a little better. Yeah, nationally overall, yes, but you know you live in your neighborhood, you don't live in the nation. <laughs> it's like you live. Um, for me, it's like what I see when I walk out my door and I get into the subway isn't really going to change that much. Right. Okay. All right. Well, let's talk about your political career. You uh, did not start off as a as a person in politics, as far as I'm aware. You were a lawyer. You first joined the Legal Aid Society after graduating law school in 1998, somewhere around there. Yes. I know you took time off to have kids and eventually went back in 2017. Mm-hmm. But why don't you tell us, first of all, where you were politically as just a, a person in the world, a, a woman in the world during your, your first tenure at Legal Aid and, and kind of what evolved from there? Yeah, I mean, I am a typical New York City, big liberal Democrat and have maybe not now, but was for most of my adult life. And I'm pro-choice, I'm pro-labor. Legal Aid Society um, is actually a unionized law office. So I was a unionized <laughs> lawyer, not, wow. not so many of those. But yeah, that's a super interesting history of the union of of legal aid lawyers. But at any rate, you know, sort of living comfortably among people who thought exactly like me <laughs> in New York City. You know, you um, we're a, an island of Democrats. And in 2016, I was a huge Bernie Sanders supporter. And what really attracted me to 2016 Bernie, who's a different candidate than 2020 Bernie, mm. um, was his insistence on universal health care. And, and he talked to class issues in a way that made sense to me. And I, I always thought it was sort of interesting that both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump spoke to people who, whose lives were impacted by NAFTA. I grew up in Pennsylvania and I went to, I lived in Easton, Pennsylvania, but went to school in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which was where Bethlehem Steel was located. And, you know, working class, NAFTA screwed over working class people in a way that I don't think the media elite ever really understood or covered in a way that was sympathetic or just even comprehending of how the deindustrialization of our, of our country hurt working class people. And I really supported Bernie Sanders. I liked what he had to say. I voted for him in the primary. <laughs> and then I voted for Hillary. And I thought I was voting for the first female president. But I wasn't. Yeah, I know. <laughs> things turned you out differently. That day, I remember going, uh, I was living in New York at the time. And I was the first person. I showed up at the polls because I thought it would. I thought there would be huge lines. So I showed up at the polls like before they even opened. It was dark outside. And there were like, 
a couple men in front of me in the line and they let me go first because oh. I was a woman. <laughs> it was like this big thing and I voted and I sort of strode out. I was not wearing yeah. a pantsuit because yeah. it was like, you know, five in the morning. But yeah. um, I know, and it seemed like such a momentous occasion. And then little, I brought my daughter with know. me. I brought my daughter with me and had her fill out the oval for Hillary. Now mm. I was a huge Bernie supporter, so I wasn't really all that into Hillary. Right, that's why moment. you had her do it. But, no, 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 it's not actually... I I had her do it because I thought it was momentous and important because I thought it was like this was going to be a historic moment. And I was sort of surprised because I was so not into Hillary while I was, you know, stumping for Bernie. And then at the end of the day, I was when it was a, you know, Clinton v. Trump race, like I could let myself get kind of excited about the first woman president and was so sure that that was going to happen. You know, like so many other people, including probably Donald Trump himself, I was yeah. really shocked <laughs> that she didn't win. Yeah, yeah. So, where were your politics at, at that time? Did you think it was absolutely the end of the world? Like, when did your? Because I know you sort of had a political evolution, as have many of us. Yeah, my fourth son was born in 2016 in May of to my fourth child. I've three. I have a daughter and three sons. My fourth child was born in 2016. And so I was home a lot as new moms are. And I was just glued to MSNBC and I would watch Chris Hayes and Rachel Maddow. And I frankly agreed with everything both of them said. But then at a certain point, the the whole Russian collusion thing just started to drag on like a bad novel. Like I was losing track of who the characters were and what was going on. And it just kept feeling like this next thing, this, you know, the Robert Mueller report, the this, the that, everything was going to eventually you know, reveal this secret grand master plot. And it was a little bit like Charlie Brown trying to kick the football. Like every time you thought it was going to, you were going to make contact, it was like, it fizzled. And then at a certain point, you know, Donald Trump is the most unpopular man in our country among people who don't like him. Obviously he has a fan base, but like he got some things right. He did some things well. I mean, the, his Middle East, policies. And I was, I scoffed as loud as anybody else when Jared Kushner was put in charge of the Middle East. I mean, it was like the biggest eye roll imaginable. But the truth is, some good things happened, you know, in the Trump administration. And like, for me, I feel like I thought it was, I do think country first, country over party. And I thought like, the whole way the Republican Party treated Barack Obama, which was like, deeply party first, like, let's just try to destroy the Obama presidency. I thought it was really awful um, and wrong and still do. But then I feel like the Democrats turned around and did the same thing to Donald Trump. It was like people felt such shame that he had beat the Hillary Clinton, who was the epitome of every that the Democrats are the smart one, like, like the coastal elites and the highly educated and the super experienced ones. And it's like, the obsession with making of like mocking him and that, and he gives you a lot of fodder to make fun of him. Right. But like at a certain point, he is the president of the United States. Even if you're a little embarrassed by him, even if you deeply disagree with his politics, even if you think he did a lot of things that were wrong. And I, you know, I do, I think there were a lot of things that I don't think we want to see in our president where he can make fun of people and stuff. But at the end of the day, you know, the con- the nation is more than one person. It's more than one man. Like you have to kind of, I started to feel that schism with my party where it was like, okay, look, he is the president. Like I'm shocked as hell, like everybody else, but he is the president. Let's try to 
have smart foreign policy. Let's try to address the domestic agenda. We still don't have healthcare, right? Like, let's try to improve the things that need improving to make things work better. But it was like the like partisan politics on steroids, like everything was just, and we saw it in this election cycle, right, Megan? It was like the Democrats were supporting in Republican primaries, the most Trumpy MAGA Republicans so that they could go up against them in the general. And and to do so, what they did is throw under the bus some moderate Republicans who had actually stood with Democrats on issues like impeachment or, you know, on, on policy issues. And I just don't think that's an honorable way to behave. And both sides do it. I'm not saying Democrats do it exclusively. Like both sides do that. And I think we need a better politics in that. Although it did work, arguably. Totally and completely. <laughs> it's very, because we, but you know, Demo, like Beto O'Rourke and Stacey Abrams didn't win either. Like we, both parties need to learn how moderate most Americans are. Yes. So speaking of that, what kinds of conversations were you having with friends around this time? So it's 2016 your fourth child is born, you're sitting around. Are you like having conversations with moms in the park kind of thing? Are you like wearing a pussy hat and oh god, no, please striding I around? Do that. No, me neither. Yeah. I just I refused and uh still paying the price with some friends, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I could never know. Part of it is because it's like if you the the pussy hat thing is a perfect example. Like I thought the comment was gross. But, you know, I've been on this planet for half a century now. It's like I've seen plenty of extreme sexism in the workplace and in my world. It's like I don't define myself by other people's bad behavior. I can't like I just don't. I think when someone behaves like an ass to the to the extent possible, ignore them, <laughs> like let them give them enough rope to hang themselves and move on. I just but I understood the the deep like passion that some people felt about needing to speak out against it. and need, But it was a lot of like tribal chest thumping going on. And that's not really my thing. And then, it, you know, this for me, the schism was like people who Donald Trump getting elected and then ultimately COVID like drove some people like further and further left. And for me, I was drifting the opposite direction. And part of it for me, let me just say, started with like I had gotten very involved. I ran for my school board and I was doing all this school stuff and I was unrelated to, I mean, it, it has a, a connection to national politics, school curriculum stuff. And it, but really before all the CRT and drag queens and schools and all that, we in New York were just arguing about academics. It was a equity versus merit argument, like the equity crowd saying that like tests are racist and, you know, we have to have an anti-racist agenda in our schools and the pro-merit people, and I firmly in that category, were saying, actually, we're doing a bad job teaching kids how to read. And we need to, at the core, do a better job with the basics. But also, we're the largest school system in the country with a million, we don't have a million anymore, but with a million kids in the New York City school system, like, of course, we're going to have, we have the scope and the size and the funding, frankly, to have the best schools in the country. We should have some of the best schools in the world. Like, we have... A, just an extraordinary pool of talent. And like for me, while I was in the midst of all those arguments, the people who sometimes were that were my allies and my, you know, friends and, and comrades in arms in this were often Republicans, a lot of immigrants, like people who were politically 
much more. And sometimes we would joke about it. They're like, Maud, you're a Bernie supporter. And it, because there was, you know, these were like Republicans and, and conservatives and, but, but we were very much on the same page with school stuff. Mm-hmm. And so then when COVID happened and then more, you know, in the, the, the riots in 2020 and all of that stuff, I found myself more and more in agreement with people who did not define themselves as progressive leftists. And so your trouble started really in 2019 after you wrote, was it an op-ed for the New York Post? Tell us what happened exactly. (laughs) Yes. I was on my school board at the time and I had testified in a city council hearing about a proposal by our former mayor to get rid of a high school entrance exam. Nicole Hannah-Jones of the New York Times of the 1619 Project fame um, heard me testify and asked to interview me, uh, which she did for I agreed, despite the fact that everyone told me, like, she's just going to paint you as like spoiled, rich, white mom racist, which, of course, she did. And she wanted to <laughs> she wanted to profile you for The New York Times or interview you for a larger article. Yeah, it was um, uh, the New York Times had launched a a show called The Weekly, and she interviewed me for that, and the episode aired, and it was about this specialized high school fight that was happening uh, during Mayor Bill de Blasio's watch, and he had this very, very woke chancellor named Chancellor Richard Carranza, who did nothing good for our entire school system except just pit parents against each other. And stir up all this fight and didn't help anybody do get a slightly better education, just spend oodles of money on idiotic things like showing how there was a stupid, there's this famously stupid list of things that are called white supremacy, like punctuality and a sense of urgency and objectivity. <laughs> like we, our school system spent millions of dollars to bring in hucksters and grifters who sell this fake notion of whiteness as this ever bad thing that needs to be rooted out, especially in school systems that don't teach black kids how to read. It just drives me insane. Yeah. And actually, I want to pause here because this is the kind of thing that people like you describe and then other people who are not there or they don't have kids in the school or they don't have any direct relationship with this kind of stuff say, no way, that's not true. No way is that happening. So can you just describe like how that plays out? Like, Does somebody literally come into the school to do a presentation? Are they a consultant? Do they come from the outside? What actually happens? So their New York City school system is so vast where our budget is a $38 billion budget. I mean, it's really hard for people to wrap their heads around the size and scope of the New York City Department of Education. But yes, the, that particular there's, there's a New York Post article because, of course, the New York Times doesn't cover this stuff. But someone, a, a New York City DOE official that was in that particular training snapped a picture of it and it got printed in the Post with this list of things that are whiteness, like white supremacy and things like objectivity and, and punctuality and stuff were on there. But that filters down on all sorts of levels. I was in, and this is what I wrote about in my New York post op-ed that ultimately got me fired from my job. But I was in a two-day training course called Courageous Conversations, which is, you know, consultants who charge top dollar to corporations and to school districts to bring in people to lead your employees, or I wasn't an employee of the DOE, but I was an elected school, you know, parent leader to lead us in these anti-racist trainings. So Courageous Conversations, which is a, an absurd program, which the people who do it and love it, love it. My, the 
executive superintendent of my district, you know, a six-figure salary administrative post of someone who really does nothing. She, when she introduced this, she wanted us all to the people who are on the board to come do this uh, training. So I agreed to it. It's a two-day training. I want to do it. She announced at the beginning of it, this this was her seventh time participating in this courageous conversation. I mean, the amount of time wasted. And who who does a course seven times? Like if you don't learn something from it the first time, it's so ridiculous. But I sat through this two-day training and it was offensive on so many levels. And I wrote about it. And I the idea that I was supposed to I was only supposed to speak if I identified myself and then my children by race. And I found it really offensive. When I find all compelled speech offensive, I don't like preferred pronouns. You can say whatever you want. Do you want to announce your pronouns every time you walk into a room? Have at it. But I don't think you can compel other people to do that and not own up to how authoritarian and gross that is. Okay. And I still want to get a sense of the scene here because... I think people have a hard time getting their minds around this. So like how many people were there? Who was in the audience? Was it teachers? Was it like high school teachers? Was it all levels, principals? And the people doing the training, like how, who were they? Were they, what ages did they tend to be? Like, <laughs> what did they look like? I want to see this actually. Absolutely. So I, for our, like the T, te- I, ki- I have kids in elementary school, middle school and high school in New York. I'll give you my kids' elementary school. They did professional development days, which are days where our kids aren't in school, but the teachers are working and they do these professional development days. They've done multiple trainings like this where they go off and get trained in anti-racism and all of these kind of what I think are really ultimately racist, but bad ideas that don't withstand scrutiny get trotted out as if they are, you know, the absolute truth. And so the one I was in had parent volunteers, but it also had DOE administration. Not so many teachers in this one because it was during the day and it was, you know, teachers work during the day, but it had DOE administrative people, parent leaders, and I don't know if there were any principals in the particular, oh, there were superintendents in the, in the, the training that I went to. So DOE employees and parents were in this training. It's all paid for by the DOE. It's part of this huge, vast budget that, you know, should going to helping kids get a better education, but goes to some of this nonsense. And really, I just, I wrote a very, frankly, timid op-ed. I think it was timid because I talked about the importance. At the time, everyone was still using these words, segregation and integration. I don't use those words anymore because our school system is not segregated. Figuring out how to best put students at the academic level they belong in once you get past, you know, a certain age is a pedagogical question. It's not a question of, of segregation, um, which is what the sort of super woke lefty crowd in New York always wants to pretend that like there's segregation going on. It's not a segregated school system. Kids are not put into schools or kept out of schools based on the color of their skin. Okay. And so what happened after you published this piece? I wrote this piece where I said basically the ideas of Ibram Kendi and, and Robin D'Angelo, whose ideas about race and, and the fact that America is a white supremacist, racist nation, that I disagreed with it. And I referenced part of the conversation I was having online at the time with Nicole Hannah-Jones. And, you know, I broke the rules of what you're supposed to do in New York about pretending that all this stuff that was being taught in the <laughs> in the courageous conversation type seminars that it was all the holy grail and you can't challenge it and i challenged it and my place of employment 
very publicly disowned me. And um, it started with the Black Attorneys of Legal Aid, which is a caucus of my union who wrote this four page screed likening me to Bull Connor and calling me racist and saying that I was, you know, so terrible and horrible and I couldn't do my job. And my employer retweeted those words and adopted those words, basically. And then my employer wrote a long letter saying that I couldn't do my job because of the views that I held. And here's a crazy thing. At the time, Megan, I was on leave from my job because I was running for city council. I wasn't even in the office. So, but I was on leave. I was still um, employed and I had a right to return, which is what a leave is. And, you know, there's, there's. I'm kind of over this stupid case in it, but it is like the the story of what of an employer saying and so many colleagues saying, how dare you think differently than we think? How dare you not parrot the far left extremist views that the most far left people in your office have or stay quiet? Right. It would have been fine if I stayed quiet. It was just that, like, you don't have the right to challenge our narrative and how dare you do it publicly. And when I had gone on leave, it was explicitly to run for office. And I had talked to my boss and I had written some op-eds before on education issues. And they were clear, like, oh, you should not refer, you know, not list yourself as a legal aid attorney. And my boss had said, the head of the office had said, you know, you can certainly write like that you're a public defender and the largest public defender in New York City. Well, where legal aid is pretty much the only game in town like that, but they're just their specific rules were. And I followed all those rules. I followed all the rules to a T in terms of what I was asked to do. But they, it was really deeply political. It was like, you're just not allowed to disagree publicly with the left faction of an institution like Legal Aid these days. And what did the left faction of that institution look like in 2020 compared to in, say, 1998 when you started? You know, it was like um, it had gotten really radicalized. And for me, it, it got radicalized in a way that didn't actually help our clients. Like I didn't see an improvement in the lawyering. I didn't see the outcomes being better for our clients, but you saw a lot of people being unwilling to speak up and say things, you know, and it wasn't just around race. There was an, there's an ongoing at legal aid. There's a constant, the, the, the office wide email, the most anti-Israel person in the office would post a screed about Israel Palestinian rights and this and that. And then someone would push back and say something. None of this, of course, has anything to do with our the work. But so there was a healthy sort of intellectual climate, it sounds like. I don't know if I'd call it healthy. Okay. <laughs> but, okay. I would, but I would say that like people disagreed about things and sometimes passionately and things that are, and you could do so, you know, and there were, you know, and some people got annoyed and then other people would say like, well, this is, shouldn't be on office wide email, this, you know, cause you'd get a long email chain about something, but you'd get a long email chain about Israel next to another long email chain about like, get the most effective way to get your client into a, a treatment court that had just opened up to get drug treatment program or something. You know, there were like, there were people just doing the work and other people arguing about political things. And, but it was like by 2020, the folks that I was sort of doing battle with in, in the department of education, um, fellow parents who were super woke and administrative officials who wanted to push this very leftist agenda and the people at Legal Aid, it was all the same 
um, culture. It was this culture of far left intolerance. And what do you think they saw as not the right path? Obviously, they think they're on the right path. But Mm -hmm. what do you think they think works? Because I'm thinking back, okay, so if you first started there and you know, the late 90s, that would have been the Giuliani administration in New York is very well known that that was a heavy police enforcement in a lot of neighborhoods, controversial Mm -hmm. policies. So I'm thinking you must have been dealing with people, um, people's involvement in the criminal justice system must have felt quite unjust to you. Otherwise, you wouldn't have gotten into this in the first place. But did you feel like just the the client that the nature of the politics in the city was sort of making things more clear cut back then as opposed to by 2020? I mean, the truth is, it's like what I said at the very beginning about living in New York City, being in a liberal democratic city. That's when you work, when your workplace is legal aid society, it's the liberal democratic politics of your city, but on steroids, right? Like we were, we almost to a T, all legal aid lawyers would have been opposed to Giuliani. I won't say 100% because <laughs> I now know enough about the people who just keep quiet um, in a workplace. But, you know, yeah, it, it's very easy to kind of fight the power when the power is being abusive towards your client, you know? So it was very, it was very gratifying work to defend your client in the criminal justice system when, and there was, there was real racism in the criminal justice system and real injustice that's on a socioeconomic level where it sucks to be poor and be in jail and not be able to have the privileges and the benefits that come from money, from having money. Is It's true in the criminal justice system as it's true in many other places, but it's really stark in the criminal justice system when it's like you sit in jail if you don't have the money to bail yourself out. And if you do, you just get out of jail <laughs> by paying the bail and that's it. That kind of, that's a socioeconomic thing. Of course, when you look in at who's sitting in jail, you see the, the stark racial component of, of that socioeconomic, you know, unfairness. But I just, yeah, it was very easy to be, I was in the slipstream with all my other colleagues at that time, you know, when I started there. I mean, the funny thing is I didn't really... The work, uh, being a pub, being a public defender and being aggressive about defending your clients, that part really never changed. What for me was um, the thing that turned my cl- my my colleagues, my the super lefty colleagues who came after me, it was the school politics, right? And the crazy thing is, the people who led the fight to sort of deplatform me and get me out of school, they don't even have kids in public school. It's like I was so it's so irritating to me to listen to these like moralizing, like we know better. I was like, you know, I've spent hours and hours and hours in PTA meetings and school leadership teams. meet. I've been elected to the Community Education Council of my district twice. I've been elected to the presidency of that position. I've been elected for three terms to the school leadership team of my kids elementary school. I'm currently sitting on the parents association of my kids high school. I've been elected to the school leadership team of my kids middle school. All, this all means nothing to most people because you don't even know what these stupid acronym, New York City acronyms are. To, but the, what it translates to is hours and hours and hours of unpaid advocacy work where you go to meetings and you try to work to make your kids school better and you um, put in a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to understand the budget, to understand the processes that you know you need to to make the schools better. And then these jerks who literally ha- don't have kids in the public school are like, 
you're racist because you support this admission policy and we know better than you. And it's like, you don't know anything. You don't even have kids. Like, have a seat. Yeah, let's talk about these admissions policies. I think the most famous example is Stuyvesant High School, you know, arguably the best public high school in the country. You have to take a test. There's no other mechanism for admission. It's not like you write an essay, you don't have an application package, you just take a test. And if you get above a certain score, you get in, if not, not. So what is the status of Stuyvesant at the moment? And was how how important was that particular school in your whole kind of set of arguments? So there is a cluster of schools. They're called specialized high schools in New York. There are three or eight, depending on how you, there are three schools, Stuyvesant, Bronx Science, and Brooklyn Tech. And then Mayor Bloomberg added some extra schools. There's some disagree that are accessed in the same way. You take the same test to get into these additional schools. There's some question as to whether those additional schools are actually covered by the state law. Because the thing is, there's a state law that says, this is how you get into these schools. You have to take the test. The, the wokesters will tell you it's all racist. It was just designed to keep out black kids. And the pro-merit crowd will tell you there's nothing racist about it because any kid of any color can take this test and do well on it. And, you know, that's the camp I fall into. I think we owe public school kids a really high quality education that lets any kid do well on a test. And I actually think there's a lot of equity in an admissions process that's easy for poor kids to access. And as evidenced by how well Asian kids who are not middle-class and who are not wealthy and who are not privileged do on this test, it's really clear that these tests aren't discriminatory. They aren't designed for white middle-class kids because poor Asian kids are doing a hell of a lot better than white middle-class kids are on this test. And that's an inconvenient truth that annoys people who want to try to pretend that meritocracy is racist, which it's not. And the truth is, look, we parents who battled Bill de Blasio and Richard Carranza to keep that test and to keep other aspects of our school system that's based on meritocracy, that's like our gifted and talented program, we won. We suffered some setbacks and some things, but we won that particular test. And that, um, you know, that's a battle that ridiculously is ongoing. It's right now they're actually trying to defund those schools, um, which is a backdoor when I talk about having to do, I've just done a lot of work to try to prepare some public materials that we parents will be using to try to make sure that they don't, the same leftist people who couldn't end those schools uh, by getting rid of the test are now trying to defund those schools. And it's infuriating and it's, you know, but it's, it's a really important fight because I th- look, I think the state of our public education system in New York, it's not just a philosophical difference. It is a philosophical difference. I think we should have really high quality, great, challenging, as good as any other country public education, you know, for New York City kids and for all American kids. But it's also like, I know this is going to sound really hyperbolic, but like, it's a national security issue. Like we are becoming an illiterate, innumerate nation while other countries are educating kids. The, the, The standard curriculum for a fifth grader or a 10th grader in China doesn't look anything like what our fifth graders are learning. Our fifth graders are, you know, getting these land acknowledgments and being taught to feel bad about the fact that they're white colonizers in 2022 and all this idiocy. And I see it day to day with the stuff my kids come home with. It's not, it, it doesn't make for a strong nation. Yeah. And I don't want to dwell on the the emissions test too much here, but just because I think people still wonder about this. What are we supposed to do about the fact that 
there aren't as there are very few black kids in these schools that because you a, a person is going to say well it it might be a meritocracy because nobody's being barred from taking this test but the fact is there are various reasons structural cultural and otherwise that asian kids are doing better i think stuyvesant is what like more than 75 percent asian at this point somewhere around there Maybe not that high. Yeah, definitely. Maybe over 60%. Okay. I don't know this okay. year what it is, but yes, over half Asian. Look, for about a 20-year stretch in the covering all of the 1980s and before and after the 1980s, Brooklyn Tech, which is the largest specialized high school in New York, was over 50% Black and Hispanic. There is absolutely nothing about taking a hard test that prevents Black students or Hispanic students or students of any color from doing well. Part of why Brooklyn Technical School, which is the largest, one of the largest schools in the country, definitely the largest in Manhattan, the reason it had so many Black and Hispanic students in it, one of the many reasons, but one of the reasons was that we had a lot of gifted and talented programs and tracked honors programs in our middle schools in Brooklyn and in other parts of the city. So if you take kids in fifth, sixth, seventh grade and teach them accelerated math, in their classroom, on an, a di- they're going to do well on a test that requires you to have accelerated math. But the liberals and the lefties and the ideologues back in the 80s were saying, oh, tracking is racist. We have to get rid of tracking. We have to get rid of honors programs. We have to get rid of this. And honestly, the places that get most hurt by that are poor neighborhoods and often minority neighborhoods who don't have always the social capital and the spare time. If you're working two jobs, who has time to go and fight the school board when they're trying to remove a program from the school. And there's a really a direct correlation. You can see the removal of honors programs and gifted and talented programs from poor neighborhoods in our city and kids in those neighborhoods having less and less access to high schools that require a test to get into them. It's not rocket science. Like if you educate people well enough to do well on a test, They'll do well on a test. But if you take away the programs and you take away that high quality education that kids need to act to do well on a test and access it, they'll do less well. It's just in some ways it's so goddamn obvious and it, it annoys me that for years when I started this advocacy, we, I did so much um, like gentle talk to try to appease the lefties about the importance of integrated classrooms and segregation and this and that. It's like, we just have to educate our kids well of every color. That means if you go into a neighborhood in the Bronx that is, you know, a school system that's 95% Black, those kids need a calculus class just as much as the kids in Chinatown. Like we have to make sure that we, and in order to get there, you have to have high quality elementary school education. We, New York City does its worst job educating young black men. They have the highest rates of illiteracy and they have the highest rates of kids who don't graduate from high school. And I, and I mean, it, that's true for boys versus girls across our city, across the country right now too, but it concentrates in young black men. And I think getting rid of hard tests not only doesn't help fix all of those metrics, it always makes things worse for the kids who are supposedly the recipients of all this liberal agitating. Mm -hmm. So when you have these discussions with people, I mean, I'm assuming some of them under other circumstances or maybe still are your friends, your neighbors, like your people that you know from Facebook, people that would have been in your book club and your community. Like what is their rationale? 
Like, do you make any sense of it? Do they envision some kind of utopia that, you know, we just need to chip away a few more years and we'll somehow reach this, you know, mythical parody? (laughs) I think there's, look, on the stuff like school thing, I'll say this, there's, you know, there's super well-intentioned people with bad ideas and bad policies. Like there are people who just really, who do look and be like, wait, there's only this many black kids in this whole school. Like there must be something wrong here. And I don't think, I think that comes from a really good place, right? People who think, hmm, I want, that doesn't seem right. We should fix that. Um, But something like how to run a $38 billion school budget, you know, a budget school system that educates, you know, millions of, of school children, every generation, really requires an analysis that's a little more complicated than, oh, let's just get rid of the test and then everyone will get a great education. (laughs) Like that doesn't, it doesn't really pass any test of, you know, of a serious policy. So yeah, there's lots of good people who, but I don't think we should make policy, whether it's about the climate or the energy independence, the school system, foreign policy, how many more billions can we send to Ukraine? Like any big issue, it can't just be like you read a headline and you're like, oh, that doesn't seem right here. Let's just do this. Like you actually have to dig in. And for me, I've spent so many years with the school system digging into what works and what doesn't, both as a parent with four kids in the public school system right now, I see what they my kids bring home. I see what happens. But also having spent years attending these meetings and understanding the budget and understanding the results that we get for all this money we spend. And I really just think it's like, there's the well-intentioned folks who come up with bad policy. And then there's just the ideologues, right? The people who are like, agree with me or you're racist, agree with me or you're transphobic, agree with me or you're a bad person. And your ideas can't possibly be just different ideas than mine. It has to be a, a, a mark of your evil. <laughs> I know evil is a strong word, but it really is like that's where people, when they try to destroy your career and they try to come after you, it's like they think that you're not a redeemable person. So you ran for city council and were not successful. What made you decide to run for Congress? Um, oh, that's a good question. I don't know, Megan. I'm a little crazy, maybe. Um, really, simply, it's this: like New York City is a Democratic city, right? We are the Republican challenger. Actually, did he lost last night, but he did better than I think any Republican has in ages and, and probably helped a lot of downstate, down ballot candidates in, in upstate New York and in New York City. Part of me wanted to be like, none of the people who were running and because of redistricting, my congressional seat was an open seat. There was no incumbent. And so it was a very tempting seat for a lot of people and a bunch of people jumped in. But I kind of wanted to run. And when I ran for city council, I was still kind of tiptoeing around my centrist views because you have to kind of, it it seemed like in New York for so long, there's a really narrow range of leftist positions that you can take. (laughs) Right. It's kind of left, left, lefter and leftist. Right. Exactly. Like how lefty are you? Oh, super lefty, kind of lefty, very lefty. (laughs) And it's like, so I, I tried to, and I have some truly lefty positions about, you know, I'm pro-choice and I'm pro-labor union and I'm, you know, in favor of universal health care and these kind of things. But I was trying to like, I was trying to not offend people, <laughs> right? Like, and I later I wrote this op-ed about why I decided to write hashtag I stand with JK Rowling in my Twitter bio. It took me a year after the whole kerfuffle with her supporting Maya Forrester, the woman in in for those who followed the that British turf (laughs) politics. And I, 
And the reason I wrote that was because like when I was running for city council, although I thought J.K. Rowling wrote beautifully about gender issues and about women's rights issues, I didn't publicly say that I supported her. No one was asking me about it because I'm running for city council. It's not like something that comes up. But I was quiet about it because the thinking was and the, the political thinking isn't wrong to be like, OK, you got all these people calling you racist because of your positions about education. The last thing you need is I'm calling you transphobic because of your positions about women's rights. I think it might cancel one another out. So it might be a win. <laughs> I wish <laughs> that would be nice. But so I decided to run like as who I am, you know, like a, be like, this is what it looks like when a Democrat who says like meritocracy is a very important part of the school system. Women and girls should have the right to single sex spaces and sports and do it without, you know, without any um, anti-trans. I'm not against trans people. You can 100% support trans rights in, in all sorts of ways while still recognizing biological reality. And it was like, in a way, I was like, I'm going to, I'm going to run as the candidate that I wish I had the choice to vote for, right? Like a Democrat in New York, who's been socially liberal, and who, whose policies, and there are people out there who agree with me so completely, but our primary system and our, our culture of really silencing people I mean, I've had people, friends of mine, I was with a dad who's a friend of mine, our kids play soccer together on Saturday morning. And he, um, he came up to me a few weeks ago, um, like, you know, the election was in the end of August and gave me a hug. He saw me and he's like, hey, Maud, he goes, don't tell anyone, but I voted for you. <laughs> but I laughed because I was like, and this is like, you know, it just, it's so absurd, but it's like my positions, which I think are so moderate and reasonable and sensible. And I actually think the broader American public agrees with me about things like we shouldn't have men who were competing on the boys swim team last year and now decided that they're a girl go into the girls locker room and take off their clothes and be naked in front of our daughters and say like, I'm a girl now, and then go out on the podium and win all the goddamn medals because they're not a girl, they're a boy. And the difference between boys and girls, the reason we have segregated sports in the in the first place is because of our biological differences. Most Americans agree with me on that, but I live in this like super blue bubble. We just proved it two nights ago in our election. And because of our, you know, Megan, the thing that kills me because I've lived it, I used to, like I said, I used to watch Rachel Maddow obsessively and I haven't turned on MSNBC in over a year, you know, I just, except for a laugh now. <laughs> but like, I don't watch it. What about NPR? How many days clean or years clean from NPR are you? It's years at this point. And it's so funny that I probably a good year had gone by and I hadn't listened to NPR. And I used to listen to it morning, noon and night. Of course. And I was like, you know what? Like, what? like I decided. And so during my campaign, Brian Lehrer is this local NPR, you know, New York City. I love Brian Lehrer. I, I used to I used to go on his show all the time and I thought he was so fantastic. And I'm not well, sure. Well, the funny thing is, because like he interviews candidates, right? So like I was, but what during the congressional race, I, um, I went on Brian Lehrer and it's like, he, his first question to me was basically, it was some version of like, but why do you support these racist education policies? Uh, he was like, oh, for the love of God. And the thing is, and what drove me crazy, so I ran for Congress and it's like the, the six, there were 11 or 12 of us. I can't remember at this point how many there were, but it was such a, it was a crowded field. And at some point they narrowed down who was invited to the New York One debate, our local TV station. And they didn't include, I thought I, 
should have been included. They disagreed. Fine. But what really annoyed me is the six people who they said met their polling criteria to be on their debate. None of them had children in the public school or children at all. I think four out of six of them had no kids. And the two that did have kids sent their kid. Were, the kids were either adult kids or sent their kids to private school. And one of the questions they asked was like, should we mandate the, the COVID vaccine for school kids, which of course means public school kids. And they all raised their hands, all of the, these people with no children or who send their children to private school. And it's like, nobody, none of the people asking the questions say like, you know, how do you factor in the fact that, you know, that you don't have kids, that you don't have kids in the public school, that the people who are, act, the, the parents who are in the public school system, overwhelmingly, um, people are not vaccinating the under 12 crowd in the city. And the group that least vaccinates their kids are Black families. And so for me, having come out of this sort of Ibram X. Kendi, um, Alice in Wonderland world, where you had to be like, accept these ridiculous, that disparate outcomes are proof of racism. So when when Black students aren't getting into a school through an admissions test, that's proof that that test is racist. Well, disparate outcomes, like let's look at the outcomes of who chooses to vaccinate their kids. And so when you keep families or kids out of a school based on a vaccination rate that keeps more Black children than anybody else, why isn't that racist? But all of a sudden that stupid disparate outcome formula that they wanted to use to tear down our academics went out the window when it came to coercing Black families into getting a vaccine, to coercing all of our families, but the, the families that most rejected the vaccines in this city are Black families. And I think, you know, if you're going to come up with this stupid little formula, you got to live with it. And But they pick and choose their own, you know, stupid little catechisms for when it works for them. Right. And to be clear, this is happening after it was pretty well established that the vaccines were not um, preventing transmission and that there wasn't a great deal of spread going on in schools. This was not back when we were still flying blind. It was a few weeks ago in this school system that they finally got rid of the vaccine mandate for student athletes. Well, guess who, you know, high school students and lots of black students in our city uh, play sports. Kids of every race play sports in our city. But when you talk about disparate impact, young black men were kept out of sports teams until a few weeks ago, Megan, for not being vaccinated with a vaccine that doesn't prevent transmission, that runs real risks for healthy young men, and many, and weren't even allowed to present natural immunity. Weren't even allowed to say, I don't need this vaccine because I have better, stronger immunity from COVID because I had COVID. I, I mean, the whole thing is so anti-science and it, the party that's always yelling, like, believe in the science when they want us to, you know. I don't want to pick on Brian Lehrer, but because I think he's a great interviewer and I've been a you know, he's been, he's such a legend in New York City media, mm -hmm. you know, local public radio host, WNYC, but he's, he just encapsulates this entire syndrome. Like this is somebody who I always saw as uh, somebody who could see the big picture, who could really like walk and chew gum at the same time and look at the complications. And I saw him as someone who was really smart. And so I listened to him regularly. I liked the way he interviewed politicians. Yes. But like when I did my, and it was like a two or three minute interview, they went through all, to his credit, I will say, unlike some of the other institutions that, you know, because I said there were so many of us running in the District 10 Congressional District. 
Brian Lehrer interviewed everybody, the people who were polling at the top, the people who were polling at the bottom. But it drove me crazy that he says to me, and I had talked about so many other issues about safety issues and about all of the many issues impacting our, our state. But again, it goes back to the like, oh, but your policies on school, you know, your proposals for how to fix our schools are racist. But the guy who won the, uh, the District 10 primary and just won the election last night or two nights ago, Dan Goldman, he has five kids, all of whom go to private school. Mm -hmm. And he's, of course, pro-teachers union, anti-choice. He doesn't think poor families should get to choose the schools that they send their kids to, like going to a charter, the way he uses his millions of dollars to choose the schools that he goes to. Brian Lehrer would never ask that question, right? Like, it never occurs to him to say to a rich guy, hey, you looked at the public schools and thought not good enough for my kids and opted out by sending your kids to private school. Why do you think poor women in this city who look at the public schools and think not good enough for my kid, I want to opt out and go to that charter school. Why do you think they shouldn't have the same benefit that you do? And if the answer is because it's bad for public schools, well then take your kids out of private school tomorrow and send them to public school. Because if you tell other people to accept a, you know, a solution that's less than what they want for their kids, because it's all for the greater good, well, you line up and do the same damn thing. And if you don't have a seat, like stop being so hypocritical. Do you think that Brian Lehrer, and I'm just maybe even saying his name figuratively here, the Brian Lehrers of the world, the people who should know better, the people who used to know better, who used to be willing to ask these questions, is somebody whispering in their ears and saying, don't go there or be on the right side of history and ask these sorts of questions and not these questions. What do you think is actually happening? I don't know, Megan, I feel like you keep asking me the same question, <laughs> which is yes, like, <laughs> how do you get into the head of the people who disagree with you, the people who dislike you, the people who have excommunicated you? And like, honestly, I don't know. And I don't mean to sound really mean, but some part of it is just so lazy, right? Like it's so, so lazy to just interview people and be like, oh, this is the one we're going to call racist because she supports Tess. This is the one, this is the millionaire who we're going to be obsequious towards. This is the one, you know, it just, I'm so unimpressed by people who aren't pushing. And mind you, there are people out there that are doing great, you know, like I, you know, I listen to you. <laughs> I listen to other voices that are taking the time I, you know, people like um, Glenn Greenwald or Matt Taibbi or people who I think the way they're kind of like the people who I used to think of Brian Lehrer as someone well, who's really right. smart, who's looking at the big picture. But we're, we're on podcasts. We're not on NPR. I know. I know. And I used to go on NPR and get interviewed by, by Brian Lehrer and others r routinely. And obviously a lot's changed. It's not just because I'm problematic or not, but it's pretty astonishing. But they don't have on, they won't have, you know, I was on, I did get the two or three minute interview because I was a candidate in a race. But other than that, like they platform and they profile and they interview people who agree with them. <laughs> like it's really boring to always talk to. And the thing is, I made a lot of efforts to go to reach out to people at MSNBC, to reach out to people to have conversations. They don't want to talk with anybody who challenges their narrative, right? And it's, I find it befuddling. Like it's not even to sit around and talk to people that you agree with all the time. I mean, look, in my private life, I don't want to pick fight. Like I, you know, if I'm talking to my mom or to my neighbor who I know I totally disagree with, <laughs> I'm not going to go have that, that fight all the time. Yeah. 
But I do tell, you know, I bumped into a neighbor in the elevator yesterday and she kind of said, phew, you know, like, oh, the elections, it was like, well, at least Kathy Hochul got elected. And I said, well, I didn't vote for her, which I knew was like, not really. I mean, you said I know that? this woman doesn't. Oh, yeah. And she like, she looks so startled at me. And I said, like, I wasn't going to vote for the people who shut my kids school for a year. And, I, you know, this woman has grown kids and it, who shut my kids schools and forced them to mask and, and, and forced us to, you know, shut down businesses. And she goes, oh, okay. You know, but I could see she's looking at me like I grew a second head because that's just not her world. She votes for the Democrat, you know, has and always will vote for the Democrats and sort of forgives them all their sins. Yeah, I know. I remember because I I haven't been a Democrat for a long time. I've been an independent for Mm -hmm. several years now. And I remember when uh, in my building in in Manhattan, somebody, the neighbors were going around kind of canvassing for local local candidates. And one of them said, well, I noticed you're not on the on the rolls here, on the registers. <laughs> Is there something wrong? Is there a mistake? What happened? Yeah. Like, ah. And I was like, yeah, you know, I'm an independent. And it was just like shocked. Like, yes, I know. We, we, think, we, we thought we liked you. We thought you were one of us. Well, right. I, you know, so but before we wrap this up, I do want to touch on something that uh, we talk about a lot on this podcast, as you may know, and the listeners you know, tend to be really interested in. It's pretty remarkable that you identify yourself as standing with J.K. Rowling in your Twitter bio and elsewhere. I think you might have even jokingly referred to yourself as a as a turf. I'm not sure. The listeners are familiar with this issue, but what I do want to ask you: Can you tell us what exactly is going on in the schools in the curriculum with regard to gender? ideology education, because I have again and again, conversations with people who say, this is not happening. What are you talking about? Third graders are not being told X, Y, and Z. You're hysterical. You know, show us, show us the receipts. And I don't have kids in schools. I don't have kids at all. And my receipts are like what people tell me on podcasts. Please contribute to that. The people who say it's not happening are ignorant or lying. They just don't know or they're lying um, and they're pushing an agenda. So like I said before, my kids, I have a child in elementary school in first grade, a child in seventh grade in middle school and two high schoolers in New York City public schools. My high schoolers had to give their pronouns at the start of this year in all of their classes. That is, the person who's written the best on this is Colin Wright in Reality's Last yes, Stand. Yes, he was just a recent guest um, here. Yes. Oh yeah, he's Colin is great, and it's really, you know, there's only so many fights you can do. I wish I had like a think tank and a staff of ten. <laughs> I would take on the gender industry of you know as it's impacting our New York City schools. But like that is not innocuous. It's getting passed off as a kindness or an inclusive way of being, but you're really telling kids that you can't tell if they're a boy or a girl without looking at them, that, that their sex is not immutable, that it can be changed. You're buying into supporting and amplifying gender ideology in ways that are is really harmful for kids when you do those stupid pronoun rituals. And it's just wrong to, for it's like, it would be like having kids pray you know, regardless of whether it's your religion or not, you can't impose that religion. And gender ideology at this point is like a cult-like religion on kids. My um, One of my kids came home with a literature assignment and they were supposed to identify that they had a passage from a, from a play that they were reading. It was a Shakespeare, but it was Romeo and Juliet. And they were supposed to 
identify the speaker, who they were speaking to, what they were speaking about, and then identify the passage through a lens. And one of the lenses was a gender-critical lens, and the materials that the teacher provided my child was that stupid gender unicorn. I mean, it's beyond stupid. It's just so dumb, apart from being ideologically harmful and really inappropriate. It's also just so incredibly stupid um, with all these, you know, and it's like this little animal. They had a gingerbread person originally, and now they switched to a gender unicorn. Of course, they have arrows pointing to where the unicorn's genitals would be if the if unicorns had genitals. <laughs> and then they have an arrow pointing to the brain and an arrow pointing to the heart to talk about the difference between your biological sex and your physical body and your gender identity. And they're talking about all this stuff as if it's real, but it's not real. Like biological sex is not something you can change. Um, my kids' elementary school used to, you'd go into the classrooms and there'd be age appropriate things hanging in the classroom. Now they've added the trans pride flag to the classrooms. And, you know, there was a different school, you know, it's hard to want to give your kid, my kids some anonymity, but it's like, it's very, very frustrating to have to be so explicit about setting boundaries about what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. My, I have a child in first grade, Bill de Blasio on his way out the door spent obscene amount of monies. The corruption in the in New York City government and in the public schools is so off the charts. But on his way out the door, he spent all this money on a mosaic curriculum. They didn't design a new curriculum. They just handed money to friends and, and to you know, community-based organizations that do the bidding of the Democratic Party. But one of the books for first grade was this ridiculous book called, like, I'm Not a Girl, A Transgender Story. And I went to my principal and said, like, I don't want this book read to my child. This is, you know, and it, it's just such for me, it's these books that push trans ideology on really young kids are deeply sexist and deeply homophobic. homophobic. Yeah. And and really, really um harmful. And they, they are the opposite of affirming because they this is a story of like a little girl who doesn't want to wear a dress and wants to do sword fighting with her brothers or her friends. And she says, I'm not a girl, I'm a boy, which some girls do at that age, as do boys. And most kids, the vast majority of kids desist or grow out of that gender nonconforming behavior. And many of those kids are gay and they grow up to be gay kids. And so telling a kid who's, you know, got a good chance of growing up to be gay. Oh, there's something wrong with you. You're born in the wrong body or we have to fix you. We have to start giving you drugs and hormones and then operate on you to fix you. I think that's the most homophobic goddamn message out there. And it kills me that in New York City, in what, in my environment that I've been seeped in for so many years in a deeply liberal environment that people can't see that. This is, I think, even harder for people to stand up against than some of the race stuff. And part of it is people don't really know what's going on because some of it is kind of like sketchy and weird. If you start talking to people about teenage girls having double mastectomies, it's sort of like, yikes, what is this? I don't want any part of this, right? Well, and then they say it's not happening. It is very much happening. And it's like, I just... There's something really pernicious, and this goes to that that the question that you kept asking of like, what are these people thinking? It's like we have this weird tribal politics that's gotten to the point where teachers, young people, people who are in their 30s and don't have kids, think that they know better than a mom and dad 
how to create this really massive psychosocial intervention in a young vulnerable person's life and that they are somehow on the side of the right by cutting a parent out of the conversation. Um, it's really, really wrong. It's really damaging to kids. And, you know, is it true that there are some parents who are abusers or bad for kids or hurt their kids? Of course. And actually, when during COVID shutdown, one of the things that horrified a lot of people is that teachers are often the biggest reporters of abuse. And so once there were kids, a cohort of kids who weren't in school and teachers couldn't see their bruises, those kids were being hurt. But a 14-year-old girl who's never expressed any gender nonconformity in her entire, you know, young life, all of a sudden saying that she's a boy and wants to start injecting her body with testosterone, trying to facilitate that by cutting parents out of the light. It's just so evil and wrong. And I can't stand that self-satisfied way that people justify, you know, thinking that parents are bad and need to be cut out of a kid's life. It just, you know, I mean, you've heard it all before and you said, but like these are kids who don't, who can't legally buy cigarettes or get a tattoo or join the army or get a driver's license. But all of a sudden you're like, oh yeah, these kids are absolutely perfectly capable of making these medical decisions and the, and we should definitely cut the parents out of their life. Yeah. And the folks who want to like get rid of parents, it, they, there's no provision to even say, Let's have a conversation with the parents and figure out if they're raging transphobic people who will <laughs> excommunicate their child. Not that it should ever be up to a parent, to a teacher to decide whether to include a parent or not. But the baseline, the the assumption is always, oh, the parents are bad. <laughs> we, we know better than the parents. And again, just to be clear, there are policies in these schools that say the parents do not or even should not be notified if a child is identifying as the opposite sex or gender. The New York City public school system doesn't have that exact policy. What we have, because it's such a vast system, is a lot of ideologically driven teachers and administrators and uh, who operate from a very woke place. There are some schools throughout the country where they have instituted those kind of policies. I'm not familiar with any that with that explicit policy in New York, but I have been a New York City public school parent now for over a decade. And there are some very, very woke administrators and teachers, you know, who, who think they know better than parents. How does it make you feel when you hear President Biden parroting these sorts of trans activist talking points? Look, I'm a defense lawyer by training. My best defense for President Biden is that he's totally senile. I mean, I don't really know what to say about having Dylan Huntley or Hunley, however that person's name is. Oh, Dylan Mulvaney. Yes. Mulvaney. S Mulvaney. Sadly, I just uh, discovered this person in the last week. So, that, Well, uh, sadly for me, I discovered him a long time ago. Eternally and, sunshine. Yeah. Wipe that away to, oh, out of my mind. But yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, for me, it's really infuriating as the, as a woman and as a mom of a daughter to have our president be totally silent about the young women who are being cheated out of their sports accomplishment, uh, out of their medals and their trophies and their accomplishments by men who are competing on their teams and then have this grown man with a weird fetish. Like he doesn't even call himself a woman. He calls himself a girl. This is Dylan, Dylan Mulvaney. Yeah. This is a very strange person. I have to say, I don't even know. How Except this is a very strange person who had a one-on-one -on -one sit down with the president yeah, of the United States. 
the young woman, you know, Riley Gaines, who is the woman who lost swimming, uh, you know, accomplishments to Leah Thomas in the pool. The only place she gets invited to is on Tucker Carlson. And I think great because then she is speaking to a whole lot of different people, but Joe Biden. So that's for me, the point where I'm like, what the hell has happened to the democratic party when the president is having this man with a weird fetish? He he talks about, it's one thing if you, Caitlyn Jenner, Bruce Jenner wants to be Caitlyn Jenner, knock yourself out, live your best life, do whatever you want to do. But Bruce Jenner even when he decides to be Caitlyn Jenner, doesn't run around talking about tampons and, and referring to, you know, like these weird, creepy things. Caitlyn Jenner is a, is a Republican for starters. Yeah, and I uh, yeah, I, so no, that that's, yeah, the, the Dylan Mulvaney phenomenon is just bizarre. And really, it's just, it's just disturbing. It's disturbing because it's like nobody's minding the store. It really, it's like watching a Borat sketch. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Like beyond, but I sometimes wonder: is is it Jill Biden whispering in Joe's ear? Is it is it the sort of you know young millennial and Gen Z rank and file on the staff? I mean, that's certainly the pattern in a lot of workplaces. Mm-hmm. I don't know who the hell tells Joe Biden to sit down with Dylan Mulvaney. I mean, I think that, but I know that I'm disgusted by it, and I think it's really bad for girls. Why are you still a Democrat? Um. Probably because I'm a little stubborn and I felt like someone within the Democratic Party needed to stand up and say the things that I was saying that I know to be true and that I know so many people actually agree with me about. But I think, and also like Megan, I was kind of waiting to see what happened in this election and see where our country shook out to figure out where I belong because it's pretty clear the Democratic Party, as it exists in my neck of the woods, in Manhattan, in New York City, isn't making room for moms like me, parents like me, women like me. Mm. So are you saying you're going to become an independent <laughs> or a Republican? <laughs> um, I Look, when I was petitioning for the first time, when I was running for city council, I'd be out with my clipboard trying to get people's signatures. and people who are independent seem really happy with themselves about being independent because <laughs> they'd be like, Oh no, 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 I'm an independent. They knew they could see you coming from a mile away. But it's also a way to pass the buck. I know, but that's the yeah. problem. It's very easy to hide. Here's what I think. If I think I'll probably register as an independent, try it on for size. But if you run for office and I don't know if I ever will again, really the path forward is you have to choose a party, right? You run as a Democrat or a Republican And I would love to see the Republican Party in New York build a big enough tent to have so many of the disaffected Democrats that are out there, you know, find a place in in the Republican Party. You don't think there's any hope for a third party? Is our system just not set up for that to ever be a possibility? Not with the primary system as it exists right now. I think that could use an overhaul too, but that's a heavier lift in some ways than running moderate candidates in either of the parties. Mm -hmm. Well, so are you, what's your, on on your hopeful hopelessness scale, where are you feeling today? (laughs) We're we're still, it's still November 10th. People are going to be hearing this in a few days. Um, you know, I'm not, um, I'm an optimist and a glass half full person, you know, by instinct. And I'll say I've worked with both in the par- in the school parent fights that I've done and in this broader political fight. I've worked with so many great New Yorkers who want a better city and a safer city. 
and um, who want great schools and who want, you know, we want to stop the hemorrhaging. We want to stop New Yorkers from moving to Florida (laughs) because it's like every other day I hear people that they want to get out. So yeah, I'm hopeful, but I know that we need better than, in terms of political candidates, we need better than what's been on offer. And we need people to be a little braver and to say publicly all the time what they say privately. Well, that I agree with. Maud, Marin, thank you so much for speaking with me. This has been a great conversation. and Thanks for having me, Megan. I hope we can do it again sometime. All right. Yeah, I would love that. Take care. Bye-bye. That was my conversation with Maud Marin. She is a New York City-based attorney and parents' rights activist. She began her career as a criminal defense attorney at the Legal Aid Society, where she worked as a staff attorney in Manhattan and the Bronx. Maud is a co-founder of Place New York City, a parent-led pro-merit organization dedicated to improving New York City's public schools. She's also a founding member of the Board of Advisors of FAIR, the Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, and a frequent contributor to many national periodicals, including Newsweek, The New York Post, The New York Daily News, and Common Sense. This is the Unspeakable Podcast. You can now support the podcast on Substack, That is my Substack page at megandaum.substack.com. You can find lots of stuff there, including writing that I am doing. If you become a paid subscriber, you get access to all of that writing. You also get early episodes of this podcast. You get bonus content. If you become a founding member, you can join our monthly Zoom hangouts. We just had one last week and it was fantastic. Uh, We get together and talk about recent episodes of the podcast. I am always there. You can ask me anything. Hold my feet to the fire if you don't like the way I interviewed a guest anything like that. The next one will be Sunday, December 4th at 8 p.m. Eastern time. What else do I need to tell you? Oh, yes. A quick note on Wednesday of this week, you might notice something from the unspeakable pop up on your podcast app. It's a little excerpt of an exciting new podcast that I'm happy to spread the word about. It's not my podcast for once. Somebody else's. I have enough podcasts. Anyway, it's not an episode, but you should check it out for a few minutes. I think you might really be interested in it. Anyway, this podcast will be off next week for the Thanksgiving holiday, but we'll return the following with another super nuanced guest, maybe even two guests. Till then, thanks for listening. See you next time. Mm